This morning we're reading from the book of Esther, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. Then the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. So Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet, weeping and pleading with him to avert the evil design of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. The king held out the golden scepter to Esther, and Esther rose and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king, and if I have won his favor, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I have his approval, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote, giving orders to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Amen. As we begin here in chapter 8, we're reading part of a 10-chapter story. At the beginning of this chapter, Queen Esther seems to be getting everything that she wants, and yet by verse 3, she's fallen on the floor, she's on her knees at the feet of the king, pleading and weeping for more help. It's hard to understand what's going on here if we don't know a little bit more about what's happened in the first seven chapters. The story revolves around Esther and her cousin Mordecai. We learn that Esther was an orphan and her cousin Mordecai became her caretaker, took care of her, raised her. While she's a young woman, the king needs a new queen. Several young women are brought to the court. The king falls for Esther. Now, he is not Jewish. He does not know that she is Jewish. He selects her as the one, and she becomes the queen. The rest of the story has a lot of plot twist and intrigue and some death and some danger, but primarily it's about what it's like to be a minority people living in a country without power or voice or control over your own fate. This book also serves as the origination story for the Jewish festival that's still celebrated in the spring of the year called Purim. They're celebrating what this story tells us about, which is a planned elimination, execution, massacre of the Jews that's averted by the actions of Esther. The fellow that's not such a great guy that's in this story is the guy named Haman. He's actually a dastardly character. He is a government official. He's worked his way up through the ranks of the government until he's only second in power to the king himself. And he sort of gets full of himself once he gets there. And he notices that when the king walks around the city or goes through the territories, everybody bows. Haman thinks that would be good for everyone to do for him as well. So he sends out an order to tell all the people, when I come by, you should bow. But for Mordecai, who is a Jew, 
that seems just a little too much. He's going to worship one God. And having to bow down to a government official seems too close to worship for him. So when Haman comes by, Mordecai refuses to bow. You can imagine how Haman felt about that. He is not pleased that this fellow's resisting, that this guy is not going to do what he's ordered should be done. Haman thinks about it, stews about it, becomes infuriated, and decides to not only kill Mordecai, but to eliminate the Jews from the entire kingdom. He writes up an edict declaring that all Jews should be executed on a certain day, a couple of months out into the future, and sends it out to all the people in the country. Mordecai hears about the order. He can't believe it. He sends word to Queen Esther and tells her what has happened and that she must tell the king because he seems to be unaware of what Haman is doing. Esther's not sure that's a good idea to go to the king. Remembering we're in a time of patriarchy, kings have absolute authority, and in this time and place, to go to the king without being summoned could end up in a sentence of death. So she wants to help, but she's not sure if she wants to risk that much. So she sends word back to Mordecai, we need to fast and pray for three days. Tell all the Jews that you know to fast and pray with me for three days, and then I will go into the king. And if I perish, then I shall perish, but I will take him word. After the three days of fasting, Esther risked her life by entering the king's courts. But rather than saying she, she should be put to death, he receives her. He invites her in, says, what can I do for you? What request do you have? And then rather than jumping right into what's going on politically and how her people are being threatened, what she says is, I would love to have a great banquet and I would like you to be the guest of honor. And he says, okay. And then get this. She says, okay, also bring Haman. So she prepares the banquet. The king comes. Haman is there. They're having a wonderful time feasting. The king says, now what is your request? What can I do for you? And she says, really what I want most of all is to do this again tomorrow. How about you come back tomorrow? The king says, I'll be there. But then, during the night, the king cannot sleep. And as many of us do, he begins to read. But he's reading sort of the history of the court. He's reading through the court annals. And he's reminded that previous to this time, a few months back, Mordecai had heard of a plot of a couple of people who wanted to assassinate the king. And Mordecai had sent word to Queen Esther once again, who had told the king and his officials, and they had been able to avert this assassination plot upon his life. But as he's reading through the annals, he realizes he never said thank you. He never did anything to honor Mordecai or to say he appreciated what he had done. So he decides it's time to do that. So the next morning, he calls Haman in. The man who wants to kill Mordecai, right, and execute all the Jews. And he says, we want to honor a fellow. This guy named Mordecai saved my life. I want you to get my horse out of the stable, put all the kingly 
decorations on him and then put Mordecai on the horse and you lead him around town so all the people can honor him. It's a great reversal of fortunes. But Haman understands how power works. He understands the king's got all the power even over him. And so he takes Haman around on the horse so all the people can honor him. But as you can imagine, he feels humiliated. He doesn't want to do that, but he does it anyway. Well, finally, they go to day two of the banquet. Again, Esther's prepared this feast. They're enjoying their time together. They're eating and drinking. And then the king says, Esther, what is your request? What can I do for you? And now she is ready to tell him what's going on. And she begins to tell him that there's been this order sent out across his land that all the Jews shall be executed on a certain day. And if that order is fulfilled, then she too will have to be killed. The king can't believe it. That someone would presume to kill his queen? He doesn't care that she's a minority. He's frustrated and angry that someone presumes to be able to have that kind of power. The story says he's full of anger or full of wrath, and he gets up and storms out of the room. He wants to know who the man is, and when he asks Esther, who's the man, she says, this wicked Haman. And Haman knows he's in trouble. The king is out of the room. Haman pleads with Esther for his life. She apparently gives him no sympathy. He attacks her physically just as the king comes back in. As you can imagine, the king is done with Haman at that point. The king has Haman executed. That's the end of chapter 7. We began to read in chapter 8. In our passage, the king, after Haman's been executed, also gives all of Haman's possessions and all his power to Esther. She passes it on immediately to Mordecai. So Mordecai's now the viceroy or second in command of the whole land. And, but there's still a problem. Haman is gone, but the order to kill all the Jews still is out there, and it's been signed with the ring, the signet ring of the king and that's why Esther is falling at the feet of the king, weeping and pleading that he revoke the order that says that all the Jews in the land should be killed. But he tells her, the edict can't be revoked. So she falls at the king's feet to beg that he revoke the order that would destroy all the Jews in the land. And then in verse 6, at the very end of where we read, we hear her pleads when she says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And that raises for all of us the question, What breaks your heart? What is it that breaks your heart? What can't you bear? During the week of the 4th of July, I had occasion to be in New Haven, Connecticut. It's the home of a nonprofit called Unite for Sight. It was started by a young woman by the name of Jennifer Staple Clark. 
It is a remarkable story of what she has done. After her freshman year in college, she went to work for her childhood optometrist. She was just looking for a summer job. And she was making some money, but what she saw in that office stunned her. She said she heard story after story of people who'd gone blind with glaucoma. Now, glaucoma is a treatable eye disease. You do not have to go blind from it. But if you do not get it treated, you can go blind or lose your eyesight. She said she realized some people just didn't have the knowledge to know about the treatment. Other people didn't have enough funds to access the treatment. But for whatever reason, she saw all of these patients that were struggling with blindness or diminishment of their sight. She finished her summer job and went back to school. She's in her dorm room at her college. And she keeps thinking about these people who've gone blind for no good reason. We have treatment, she's thinking. I've got to do something. She begins to organize students on the campus. She recruits several dozen students, brings them together, educates them about vision and treatment and how you can access it. And then she sends them out to the soup kitchen in the town, to the public library, to the public square, having them talk to anybody they find about how is their eyesight and do they know there is help here and access here. Not only do the students in New Haven begin to do that, but other students begin to hear about it. One chapter after another begins to be springing up across the country of students organizing to go out to help people with their eyesight issues. Today, there are over 50 chapters across the country. By the time she graduates from college, she moves what she's doing to not only a domestic kind of nonprofit working to help people, but she begins to deal with people who are underserved globally. She begins to work with an optometrist in Ghana who already has a clinic on the ground, but she finds out he needs more resources, and if he had more help, he could help more people. And she begins to organize to send those resources, both in terms of equipment and money and people. They now have a extension of clinics across Ghana providing eye care where in some of the places in the country no other medical care is available to people at all but not only Ghana now they've also expanded to India and not only India but also to Honduras now think about this she's a 19 year old student going to school full-time when she feels this yearning to help And now, 19 years later, Unite for Sight has served more than 2.7 million people and provided for more than 106,000 sight-restoring surgeries. I think what a bold move on her part to believe that she could make a difference. What a bold move to believe that it was something that she could no longer bear, that she had to act, and not only act on her own, but to be bold enough to share it with other students and then other campuses and then finally other countries. I think she probably had the sense, as Esther did, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred.
What can't you bear? What pain do you see? What evil do you know about? What wrong have you heard about or seen or experienced that you might make right? People who study human behavior say you can boil it down to that some people are seeking pleasure and others are trying to stop pain. I think it's clear that Esther and Jennifer both have decided that they are motivated by stopping the pain, by helping others, by doing something to protect other people who are in a way of losing their eyesight or some other wrong that they're experiencing. The pain of others can be a great motivator. It can compel someone to act on behalf of someone else to risk their life, to risk their fortune, to risk their time on behalf of helping someone else. What is it that might compel you to act for the good of another? What evil are you willing to stand against? What wrong are you willing to make right? What pain and suffering are you aware of that you might stop? And where do you see a need? That you keep thinking someone should solve this. Someone should do something. Could that someone be you? We no longer live in a time where we're kings or queens or have the kind of authority or power, thank goodness, where one of us can say we're going to eliminate a whole ethnic minority. Although that still exists in some countries today, not in ours. Even though we don't live in times like Esther, I believe this scripture is a call to us, a call to be aware of minority groups in our midst, a call to watch how power is used and how it affects those who don't have equal access or power. I think it's a call to be more aware and sensitive of those around us and the pain and suffering that we observe as we think about what we might do as a Christian disciple in response to that. Clearly, Jesus lived in a time where there were people who were ostracized and cast out and marginalized. He was aware of them and he was sensitive to them. And when he saw their need, what did he do? He would reach out to offer help and hope and love and care and concern. As his disciples, we too, have an opportunity to reach out with love and care and concern and offer help and hope to another. Our job is to discern what is our role in all of this today. Both Esther and Jesus employ prayer and fasting as a way to discern God's leading and prepare themselves for service. Perhaps, perhaps it's time for us to do the same. Amen.